Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. You know, the way I look at Tokyo is it's maybe the highest demand, it will be, in my opinion, the highest demand Olympics of all time. It could end up being the highest demand event of all time. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I am doing well. How are you doing? I'm excited because today we're talking about traveling to Tokyo for the Olympics. And we talked about the co-sport ticket lottery being over and the lottery in Japan happening. And now we're in that holding period where... We'll find out next week if we got any tickets in the ticket lottery. But it's this still is very exciting. It is exciting and scary because, like, what happens if you don't get tickets and you're ready? You're planning to go anyway. Well, we've got a guest on who can help us with that. So it was great. Great to hear that calmed a lot of nerves. He did. He was very, it's all going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> very reassuring. Yes. But we have some, we have an update from last week. Yes, we do. The three uh, Swedish regions that are involved with the Stockholm Aura bid for 2026 have shown their support officially in a joint letter that they sent over to the IOC. And, and... not just in a Swedish context. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they got that in on time. So maybe it will sway some people to vote. On Twitter, we took a very informal poll and with only a few votes, but... 89% voted for Stockholm Aura. 11% for Milan. Yes, and that that wow. that vote for Milan must have come overnight because it wasn't looking good. Like no. <laughs> like they had no support on on our little Twitter poll. Right? Right? Wow. But, uh, yeah, thank you everyone who voted in that. It's a lot of fun to hear what you all think and what's going to happen, which we'll find out very soon. June June, June 24th. 24th. Yeah. Going to be a big day. So, Let's move into this week's guest. We're talking with Ken Hanscom, who is the COO at, of Ticket Manager and a recognized expert in ticketing, corporate sponsorships, traveling to, and experiencing the Olympic Games. 
During Rio 2016 and Pyeongchang 2018, Ken worked directly with the United States Olympic Committee, NBC Universal, Anheuser-Busch, and Cartan Tours, which is the authorized ticket reseller for 23 countries. While in Rio and Pyeongchang, Ken was featured in primetime on NBC's Olympic Zone with Natalie Morales. And Ken talked with us about how to plan your travel for the Tokyo 2020 Games. Take a listen. Thank you very much, Ken, for joining us. We want to talk about traveling for the Tokyo Olympics and if you want to see it in person. So it's obviously not like any other sporting event in the world. And normally you just, you know, go to a box office and buy tickets. This is very different. So how does this process start? Well, I think the process starts for everyone with understanding what you really want to see at Olympics Games. There's so much to see. There's so much to do. And just sitting down and really making a plan, taking a look at when are the events going to happen? Where are the events going to happen? And how can I create kind of an experience around those dates and times? I mean, most of us or a lot of people go to the Olympics specifically just to see the events. A lot of people also choose to do some tourist things. Now, it can be challenging to do that because it's a lot more crowded. There's a lot more people in cities. But it all, I think, starts with looking for what are the events that you want to attend. And you base your entire agenda, at least that's what I do, around the things that I'd like to see. Now, how many venue sites are there for Tokyo? I think depending on how you look at it, anywhere, be t- I mean, difference between venues and venue sites, you know, there's somewhere around, you know, roughly four major areas that you're talking about with, and that doesn't include the football tournament, which is, you know, can be spread out throughout the entire country, uh, depending on, you know, different cities have opportunities of, with the football events. But, you know, the main areas are going to be obviously in, in Tokyo, closer to the sea for some of the surfing competitions. And then the, the velodrome for the track cycling venue is a couple hours outside of Tokyo. Okay, so these are significant distances apart from each other. Yes, they are. And oftentimes they can take anywhere between two or more hours to travel from. So I think one of the early things you want to be really cautious of is planning multiple events in a day. Yes, I, I know I've worked with, I've talked with people who have done three events in three different locations or three different kind of venue clusters in a day. It is a lot of time traveling, even with cities like Tokyo that have great transportation. I would generally recommend do no more than two events in a given day and try to keep them in, in, within kind of one cluster or one area rather than you know, spread, spreading them out. But again, there's people who are super aggressive about this and are able to make something happen where, hey, it's two and a half, three hours out to the, you know, to track cycling and it's another two and a half hours back. In Rio, most of the traveling between each of the clusters, and there was four there, was anywhere between an hour and a half and three hours. Yeah, that's a significant amount of time during your day. It is. And you you really have to be conscious of that. If you're doing a back-to-back, even even within the same uh, cluster, so say, even if you're within the Olympic Park, I mean, it can take you 20, 25 minutes, maybe even an hour, you know, with security and entrance to get from one venue to another. Okay, so this month we've been hearing a lot about the ticket lottery. What is that? Yeah, the ticket lottery is, is super exciting. It, the reason for that is it's the first opportunity for fans to get access to tickets for, for Tokyo 2020. And the lottery specifically in Japan is an opportunity for residents of Japan to register an interest 
for a certain number of events that they would like to attend to enter into a lottery. Now, this lottery has been extremely successful. That was, I think at the close of the lottery, which ran you know, roughly through the month of May, seven and a half million people registered for what really is a total of you know, 7.8 7 million tickets in entirety. So the you know, Tokyo 2020 is already super popular. But that's just for Japan. That's just for Japan. That, that's right. And then the results on that will be announced on June 20th. And at that point, the people who have won the lottery will then have the option to, you know, take those tickets and pay for them. Different things are happening uh, throughout the world. For example, here in the United States, Coastport ran. Yeah, frankly, it, it's, it's, it's also a lottery. It's just not called a lottery. Uh, but what it is is there was a request process uh, that ended uh, a little over, you know, just a few days ago where you would come in, you would register, you'd select the events that uh, you would be interested in attending. And on June 20th, similar to uh, what will happen in Japan, we'll all be notified about uh, if we received any tickets and for what events uh, and what categories our tickets are in, at which point we'll have six days to choose whether or not we purchase those or those tickets go back for a general sale, which generally will begin in many countries around June 27th. Okay, so in the United States, CoSport is the official reseller. They are. And I say reseller because it's really not a reseller in the sense of what we normally think of it. It's sort of the only place for U.S. residents to get tickets from. Yeah, they are the only authorized place for U.S. residents to get tickets from. They have, they have a partnership or an agreement with the USOC. They work extremely closely with them on the hotels, the packages, and the tickets that are available there. And then they run that entire process on behalf of the USOC for the United States. And each country has its own authorized reseller. That's correct. And now there are some countries that have not signed, signed up. At some point in time, they will work with a Tokyo organizing committee to see if those countries get their distribution. But yeah, there's roughly eight to 10, what they call authorized ticket resellers or ATRs throughout the world. Some of the ones that have more, you know, multiple countries include CoSport, include Kingdom Sports, include Cartan Global Tours. And just what you need to do, depending on which country you're in, if you go to the Tokyo 2020 site, they tell you who your authorized ticket reseller is for your, uh, either your, your country or your region. Okay, so do the different countries get specific allotments of tickets? They do. Okay. And that's, that's based on the requests that are made by the Olympic committees uh, for each one of those countries. What's really interesting is that in Europe, the, the, you know, because of the European directive, you can, as a, as a resident of the France, you can purchase tickets from Germany's authorized ticket reseller. So anyone within the European Union can purchase tickets from another, uh, you know, another country's authorized ticket reseller. There's not the same restrictions that we have here in the United States where, for example, we cannot purchase tickets through Canada's or Mexico's or North America, so to say. But in the EU, you're not just restricted to your country. You're restricted to you're only you're restricted or opened up to the rest of the EU. So you so, could you could sign up for multiple ticket allotments then if you lived in the EU. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah, in the case that they uh, not all countries in the EU ran a request process, but if they did, you could and there are people that do. And uh, the people that have done that have been very successful uh, throughout various processes at getting tickets to the events that they want to go to. So have the, you know, like the USOC or the various countries 
complained about not getting a good enough allotment. Is that an issue? It, it's always an issue, especially with a country like like the U.S., who has a lot of people that <laughs> and complains about everything. Right, right, uh, and even in Rio, uh, it was very until they Rio started selling directly to everyone. There were not enough tickets, even with how few people from the U.S. ended up going to how that what they were anticipating. I think something like 125,000 tourists from the U.S. went when they were initially expecting half a million. Still, there there was not enough tickets because the reality is this is roughly 75 percent of the tickets go to the host country. And so of the 7.8 million tickets that are going to be made available, right, we're talking close to 6 million that go to the residents of Japan. And then the rest of the world, uh, you know, gets an allocation based on historical precedents, number of athletes, right, a number of criteria goes into their requests that those committees grant to each one of those uh, organizing committees. So is there a point in time where a host country can see that their ticket sales may not be what they expect and, and just say, forget it, we're selling to anybody? And and I'd say that more for Rio. Yeah. I don't really see that happening for Tokyo. But like, if you have a, a games that is not getting the ticket sales from outside that they don't expect, what... what, what Korea that had that problem, yeah. right? They didn't yeah. sell. That's right. That's right. So I think the most important uh, thing here is that this lottery request process is the beginning, not the end, of everyone's opportunity to get tickets for the Tokyo 2020 Summer Games. Because when you think about it, right, they're talking about 7.5 million people are applying for, and if they did a similar amount, right, generally people apply for you know, anywhere between 10 to 12 tickets. We're talking you know, requests for 85 million tickets when there's only roughly 3.5 million going to be uh, granted as part of this lottery process. So even in Tokyo, roughly 90% of the people that are making requests are not going to receive any any tickets, assuming that everything's similar as London, which is the closest proxy to in terms of interest, in terms of what we've seen. So they're only making a subset of these tickets available. So then what starts happening, let's say over the next 12 you know, over the next 12 months in the run up to the Olympic Games, there is a you know there's a set, some set of these tickets that people request they're simply not going to buy. So those go back into a pool, and then those are available on kind of a first-come, first-served basis. And this is all part of what's generally called the phase one of sales. And then there becomes a point where those are either all sold out and those are stopped. And what the Tokyo 2020 committee does with each one of these countries, there's an agreement there. And that agreement says that if you have not sold sufficient amount of your inventory, Tokyo 2020 reserves the right to actually either take those back or sell those tickets on the behalf of these countries and do that on a global level. Now, to your point, depending on the demand and what we see in, in other countries, there may not be a lot for them to do that with. But in Rio 2016, about three months before the Olympics, that got opened up worldwide, where Cosport was no longer the only place you could buy tickets. You could go directly to Rio 2016. Pyeongchang 2018 did the same thing, and Tokyo is talking about, you know, has made, made plans to allow that to happen. So oftentimes what you'll see is countries will not either sell certain things in certain packages and or not use all their allocation, and then they return those. And so the second phase of sale, it's not, it has not been determined specifically, at least hasn't been disclosed publicly when that will be. But what the agreements with these authorized ticket resellers say is that between May, I'm sorry, between uh, January and April of 2020, that second phase will begin. So there's a lot to, to be seen. And generally what, what we see is that these are released in blocks over time. So if you miss out on one or two of these opportunities, you're going to continue to have opportunities for the next year if you're very diligent and you put a lot of hard work in 
you're going to be able to get a good portion of the tickets that you want from the primary, let's call it what we call the primary market or the authorized sources. Probably won't talk too much about the secondary market because technically it's not supposed to exist, but I expect it to be, it's going to be fairly lucrative and tempting for a number of people given the demand. And now just one question on the secondary market. Is yeah. that, well, there's two questions. Is it legal in Japan to do that? And I assume the IOC, it's violating your ticket agreement. Yeah, there, there, there's two pieces of this. One is a, a law just went into effect in the last week. Actually, it's, I'm sorry, it goes into effect in the next week about making it illegal to sell tickets for an event above face value. And they're doing that for you know two reasons. One is they have the Rugby World Cup later this year. And of course, with the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, trying to make that more difficult for these tickets to be picked up by scalpers or ticket brokers and then flip for two to three to four to X, depending on what the demand is. Tokyo 2020 will also make a resale site available for people who are not able to use their tickets or not. And so that will be all at face value. But the authorized way to resell your tickets if you're not able to go to the event or you got too many tickets and you don't, you know, you're not going to be able to use them. Tokyo 2020 is, is going to have a site that's available for that. The one challenge with that is this, is that for the last two Olympics, you know, Rio and 16 and Pyeongchang in 18, those were not available to other countries. It was only available if you bought your tickets directly through the organizing committee. And the reason for that is that through the organizing committee, you generally are getting either mobile tickets or electronic tickets. But in, early on, uh, at least in the other countries, like going through CoSport here in the U.S., you're going to get a paper ticket likely shipped to you versus a mobile ticket. Now, somebody, uh, one of our listeners had mentioned that your name is printed on your ticket. So is it then against the ticket agreement if, for instance, you give your ticket to somebody else that not reselling, but just giving and using somebody else's ticket? I, I think it's going to be printed on your ticket in Tokyo, Japan. We'll see if they're printed on the uh, tickets that are distributed internationally. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens there. I, I'm skeptical if that will be the case, but they definitely will be for Japan. Will you technically be violating your license uh, of the ticket by having someone else go and do that? I think yes, but that becomes very difficult to manage, especially for sponsors and for others who are bringing lots of guests who they may not even know until the last minute or the last day. Who, you know, if, if I'm one of the major sponsors, I'm bringing in a group of 50 people. All of a sudden, I'm, you know, Ken is a guest of, you know, to pick your sponsor I'm, I'm sick that day so when somebody goes in my place i think it's gonna be very difficult to deny, deny entry to somebody to somebody so we'll see how, how that goes but the law that i'm talking about in terms of ticket reselling and scalping does put the onus on the tokyo 2020 organizing committee to make sure that the people that are purchasing the tickets are the ones that are using the ticket so i think there'll be more to come on that over the coming months okay so now i'm nervous <laughs> well why, why are you nervous <laughs> this is so complicated. This sounds like planning. You know, I compare the most planned trip to when I go to Disney World, where you literally plan every meal and every event, and this sounds worse. You know, it's close to that. I have to tell you, uh, you know, I'm fortunate my wife does all the planning for this, and I can tell you she already has a spreadsheet put together with all of the events that we're, we would like to go to, the times, the tra you know, some of the transit times that we're expecting between the events to plan out. You know, the roughly, you know, 17 days of, of events that, that we're planning to see. 
Of course you work for the ticket company, but you're waiting <laughs> <planning> your trip. <laughs> She's fantastic at it. She does a much better job than I could ever do it. Do at it. <laughs> so what are some of the most popular events for Tokyo? Yeah, you and, know, and do I, they I, change from games to, from summer games to summer games? They can, depending on depending on, on the country. You know, let's, let's use the example: beach volleyball was the most probably the most popular, other than you know yeah, football, soccer in Rio, where you know generally what you'll see the top three sports. Uh, you're really going to see a lot of requests for gymnastics is going to be huge, swimming is going to be huge, and then track and field. The, the, those three are always popular, and they're going to be both popular. Uh, in Japan, as well as I- international guests, you know, track cycling or uh, you know, track cycling is always a high uh, d- demand event. So I think we'll see a lot of that. Those are going to be the, probably the hardest tickets to get out. You know, let's outside of opening ceremonies and possibly uh, opening ceremony and possibly closing ceremony. Uh, but those, those, you know, three to four sports are going to be immensely popular. They, they are every cycle. How many of the tickets get saved for? the athletes and the sponsors percentage? The athletes is not as many as you and I would hope for. And the starting with that, you know, with the USOC, you know, there's a pretty, pretty good policy there where, you know, each athlete I think gets two and then the opportunity to potentially buy more if they're available. And I think we're seeing a little bit movement towards that over time. I know the LA 2028 is making a commitment that the organizing committee is going to make sure there's two available for every single. But I think it, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. And so we last saw this challenge really in London 2012, uh, where there was a group of, of people on Twitter. They're known as the uh, you know, 2012 Tweeps. They did a tremendous job in helping athletes' families find tickets for that. So that, I expect that to be a little bit of a challenge uh, as we head into here. And, you know, sponsors get a significant portion of, of, of tickets, and it's really going to depend on the level of sponsor that they are and how they're negotiating their deal, whether it's the Tokyo Organizing Committee, whether it's the IOC, or whether they've, you know, negotiate more locally within a country, for example, with, you know, Team USA, the USOC. And it's, it's going to vary greatly. Okay, so you get your tickets. Now you've got to get there. I know CoSport here in the U.S. has the travel packages do you do. think yeah so do you think packages are the way to go or trying to book things individually if you have a very large budget you don't want to have to worry about finding hotels or airbnbs packages are a way to go but if you're look, if you're going on a budget packages tend to be very expensive you know given what's inside of those packages if you do your own work you can do it for much much less expensive than what the packages are. But, so, but somebody who says, you know what, this is way too much for me to figure out all this planning. I don't want to have to worry about it. Going with a package with, with CoSport or, you know, with Cheer in the U.S. or, you know, Jet Set Sports, which is doing, I think, the overall for, for Tokyo 2020, is going to be the easiest, probably most stress-free, place, stress-free way that you can go. Uh, yeah, what I say, the, the, you know, the challenging thing in terms of people making decisions right now we just don't know the inventory that's available with hotels in Tokyo, and we won't know for about another 30 days. Most hotel bookings can't be done more than a year in advance, which is very important. But the other important piece of this is that the IOC, all the national organizing committees, they all go into Tokyo, and they went in eight years ago, or you know, actually back when 
it was it was awarded, and they made deals with a lot of the hotels. So many of the hotels, if, if you're hoping to stay in the Four Seasons in Tokyo downtown, I'm going to tell you right now, that's not going to be available for you, as well as a lot of the higher-end hotels. These are all taken. They're booked throughout. They're booked for you know sponsors at a you know national you know organizing committees as well as the IOC. So really, it's a little bit of a wait and see right now, where we're you know we're waiting really to mid end of July, maybe early August, to see what can be booked at a hotel level. What's, I was gonna, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Oh, I was going to ask, like, kind of in relation to that, it, because a lot of hotels get blocked off. Do you ever find that some of those rooms get released closer to the games if they're not going to use them, or do they pretty much always use them? Uh, so Rio, uh, Rio got a lot of them got released and were available uh, last minute, uh, less than 30 days. Pyeongchang, just because it was so difficult, there just wasn't a lot of hotels out in uh, that the the, pro- the province out there. That didn't happen as much. Where you could, if you wanted to do the two and a half hour train ride, you could do you know Seoul you know fairly easily during that time. So I think if if we yeah so so it's possible. I think it's going to be very unlikely. With Tokyo, you know, the way I look at Tokyo is it's maybe the highest demand. It it will be, in my opinion, the highest demand Olympics of all time. It could end up being the highest demand event of all time. So how does the just the stock of hotel rooms in Tokyo compare to, say, London? It's it's similar. It's 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 well over 100,000. But I know Tokyo is just an extremely dense city. It, it, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's five times, you know, the, the four to five times the size of the metro London area. If you looked at the metro population, you know, six or seven million versus well over 30 million. So, so it's significant. The other difference, though, is that there's a lot of Airbnbs out there. And some of the people that I know um, that have gone to London, uh, as, as well as Rio, some of the other, they've already booked some Airbnbs kind of as a bet that have very favorable cancellation policies as a backstop for when hotels and other things could come. So if you're really trying to plan ahead and lock something down, it's entirely possible to, for you to do that now with like Airbnbs, but the Airbnb adds a whole new mix to what we didn't have really back in 2012 at London. Right. There wasn't much, I mean, Airbnb existed, but it wasn't anywhere near the player. That, that's right. And I think you can also argue that Yokohama, you know, Metro is close enough via train ride, 45 minutes, to, you know, to an hour, that many people, you know, will find and can choose to stay there versus, you know, g- generally in, in Tokyo. So I think okay. there's a there, there's a lot of inter- a lot of different options there, but we won't really know until early August uh, what really the availability is and, and how difficult that's going to be. Okay, and getting around from venue to venue. Jill and I had come across a very funny article where they were talking about how there aren't enough bus drivers in the entire metro area to man the number of buses that they think they're going to need for Tokyo. So I'm just wondering, in terms of when you look at the planning, what issues do you see with the ground transportation? You know, in a city like Tokyo, I try to take the existing public transportation as much as possible. And so I, you know, I, I'm really looking at things like where the subway routes and how close can they get me to the venue and am, am I willing to, to walk? You know, I take tend to take less buses because I, you know, frankly ran into a lot of challenges with, with buses in Rio. But so I think we'll we'll see. You know, this early out, if there's not enough bus drivers, that that's a for me, it's a fairly simple problem for Tokyo to solve. They can work over the next six months to bring them in. We heard a similar thing with Pyeongchang that there wasn't going to be enough bus drivers for the region. They pulled the number from 
you know, Seoul, you know, just three hours away to do that. I, I can see that. That to me, that's a fair. While that's a an issue, that that's one of it's fairly benign in terms of I think other issues that we've heard or seen in the past few cycles that I probably would tend to worry less about. Okay, so issues in Rio. What kind of things were problematic for the tourists there? Yeah, I think getting between the sites. If you took the public transportation from you know you're saying say you're staying in Copacabana and you were trying to get to the Olympic Park. If you're trying to get to that to the, that cluster, really what it could take you it could take you up to four hours on public transportation. The other problem that really ha- that happened quite frequently there, uh, I went to every swimming final d- during during that, and the swimming finals ended between like midnight and 1 a.m. But the public transportation shut down on the metro at 1 a.m. And so many of us on a couple of occasions, you know, we had to get outside the park. By the time we got on the bus and the bus to the to metro, it was shut down. And so very quickly, what, what, what we decided to do is, you know what, we're just going to take Uber everywhere. So our solve for a lot of these challenges uh, in Rio was just to take Uber back and forth between Copa and the Olympic Park. And it ended, up, it ended up taking anywhere between, depending on traffic, 45 minutes, an hour and a half, which was a massive savings over what was put in place. Yikes. <laughs> we're, we're just shaking our heads here. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that that's one of the things is that when you're on the ground, you're gonna you just learn quickly. Sometimes things that sometimes the things that you think are not gonna work out. And I think as you guys mentioned at the beginning, wow, this is such a massive planning undertaking. But you know, with just a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of flexibility, it gets very easy. And when you go to the events and you experience them, you, you know, you just have so much energy and adrenaline, and, and it's such an exciting time that it makes a lot of those things just kind of go away. Like you, you kind of forget about them as much as that was a pain back then. And, you know, I have a lot of, you know, the way the number of issues that we're hearing about Tokyo compared to what we heard, you know, with London and Sochi and Rio, we're hearing so little of that right now. It's almost like people are trying to find things that are go, are, are wrong, you know, to, to, in terms of what could go wrong with it. We don't have, like, I think the same level of issues that we've heard with the past few Olympics. Say you get tickets to just a couple of events and you're going to go for maybe a week. What kind of other things are do cities put on to like in, in enrich the atmosphere? Are there viewing places? Are there, you know, how do, how do the country houses work? Things like that. What, what else can you do to get yeah. an Olympic experience? It's such, such a great question because the events are just part of the experience and, you know, you can choose to do a number of things. One is, is maybe if you haven't traveled to Tokyo or Japan, you can choose to do, and I, I'm not an expert on everything to do in Japan, but there are, there are lots of great things to, to do, to visit, to experience in the country, in the region, that you can block off days to go do those things. But there are some really fun things. You know, some of my favorite parts are, what you mentioned is, is the, you know, the hospitality houses or Olympic hospitality houses. And a lot of countries put these on. And, you know, if you look at some of the favorites from the past, you know, the France houses, always a lot of, a lot of fun. The German house, you know, it goes on and on. But you have, what you have to do, and we'll discover more over time, there's certain houses like the Team USA house, which is just isn't open to the public. And the only way to get into the, into the Team USA house is either if you have a pass and you either get those through a partnership with uh, the United States Olympic Committee, through a sponsor, someone along those lines. But there's going to be roughly 15 to 20 houses that you, you can go. And each one of those houses have, has a unique experience for that country. It's an opportunity for them to show their culture. 
And so what you see is you see exhibits. Uh, oftentimes there's performances. There's food that's specifically native to that region, to, to that country. And those are all things that you can spend a day just cheering experiences. You know, the Heineken Holland House is always a, a fun party. Uh, some of these are wide open, meaning you can just kind of visit them. Others, like, for example, the uh, Holland Heineken House, uh, Heineken Holland House, you buy tickets in advance, and those will go on sale, you know, somewhere between, you know, six and nine months from now, and you can p pick a specific day or night. There will also be, to your, you know, to your question, fan fest areas located throughout the city. Uh, not all of them have been announced, but there will probably be three to five where you can go sit with other fans, watch uh, the events on big screens, and just really enjoy that. You don't have to be at an event to have just a phenomenal Olympic experience, you know, to, to your point. We've heard about Holland House. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> it's fun. I tell you, in Pyeongchang, it was a lot of fun. So where do you find the information for how to, getting, how to get tickets or how uh, to get into those houses? Yeah, you know, what, what you'll see is in terms of tickets, you, you kind of search around. Uh, I know I myself, my, I, I write a few articles in terms of, of how you do that. There's Facebook groups that you can join. Uh, for example, there's one called uh, Tokyo 2020 Planning, uh, which, you know, it's a group of people that have gone anywhere between none. There's a lot of newcomers of people that have gone to like 12 and 15 uh, Olympics. And what they do is they help people plan. You know, you can go in ask any question that you want and you can learn about it. And there's just a great community of people that are contributing because well, at the end of the day, people like my, myself who are involved in those, we just really want people to go and have a great time, and we want to make it easy for them. Twitter is a great way. There's a group that uh, hashtag, you know, pound 2012 tweeps, and these are notorious, you know, these are great ticket hunters. Anytime, like, for example, tickets show up on the German site, you'll see a tweet go out, and people will go over there and find, and they'll even call out what specific events tickets are for. So there's lots of different ways, if you just know a couple places to go, and you stay kind of in tune with that, that you can follow, learn, and know uh, what, what the opportunities exist in terms of finding tickets. It, it does require you to be patient and diligent. What kind of tourist traps are there when you go to an Olympic Games? That's a really good question. <laughs> well, everything's going to cost more. I mean, you know, I, I visited Rio just for vacation because I want to experience it a year. I generally do that before. Um, like I said, just went on one vacation, do all the tourist things. I can tell you everything from the coconuts that you would buy on Copacabana along the beach were 5x the price. So I think that what you would expect is a lot, a lot of prices, you know, basically be, versus uh, they were, uh, went from a dollar to $5 for a coconut. You know, beers went from maybe like 3 bucks to like $12. So you'll see some of that kind of price inflation. I think what you want to be careful of is, you know, uh, People selling tickets, you know, anywhere either on corners, any of those, because there, you know, there's going to be a large demand for tickets, and you're going to really want to make sure that you're buying tickets from authorized sources. I think that's probably the biggest trap that we'll probably hear about is somebody bought some tickets and they paid a lot of money for them and, and they were denied entry, and it was because they were bought in a specific place and not from somebody that that was authorized. I think, and then I think you just want to be careful of maybe normal things, you know, specific tours, just make sure that they have their, you know, people are authorized, make sure that you're doing through certified for Airbnb. Japan put a new law in about a year ago where you actually have to be licensed now to do Airbnb. Not anyone can put them up. So I just think making sure that you're staying within kind of the boundaries and guidelines that the government's putting up, that's going to be the, 
safest way to not uh, get caught into kind of tourist you know, traps. Do you think price gouging is going to be a problem in Tokyo in general? It's a good question. Just given how regulated the, the their system is, as opposed to Brazil, which is kind of very freewheeling yeah. in comparison. It, it's, inter it's interesting. You know, it depends on what you consider price gouging. I know when we see inventory start showing up, I guess that's my hypothesis is, when we start seeing inventory show up in July, the hotel prices in July are going to be much more expensive than they were, they will be for 2019 that same week. So I don't know if you consider that price gouging or not. You will pay more for every single thing that you would do in Tokyo during this time than if you did it previous year. I have a couple of questions. One is Japan is a pretty cash-based society. Do you still see that happening? And how much is the uh, you definitely need a visa card because they're an Olympic sponsor? Uh, uh, you need issue? to have a you should have a visa. You should have a visa card. I, I would say it's it's almost mandatory for you to have a, have a visa card. And that being said, is there will be inside the stores. This this happened at, at Pyeongchang, and even a lot of the questions that we got on some of these groups, and and I fielded over Twitter is like, hey, I got here and I didn't realize I really needed to have a visa card. And you know that that's obviously the power of the visa sponsorship, and that's you know by them being the only things accepted. Once you get inside the walls of the Olympics, when you're in venue, trying to purchase tickets, trying to purchase souvenirs, trying to buy food, visas, you know, is it, gonna be the, the way to go. Now, if you, you know, what you can do is you can put money onto a visa card and they'll allow you to do that usually at the, uh, at a lot of the uh, souvenir stores that are out there. But I would recommend going with a visa card. It'll make your life a lot easier. So we need to make friends with Visa because I bet they get a lot of sponsor tickets too. <laughs> they may have one or two, and you may see uh, you generally you generally see like you know them, you know Bridgestone, Toyota, you can go through a lot of the the major sponsors, right? You'll see their signs walking through venues with large groups of you know fifty, a hundred people that you know they are entertaining and taking uh, to a lot of the events there. You know this this is a um, that's a reason that they're sponsors, right? This is a, this is a highlight uh, that they can take a lot of their best customers to. What are kind of so you've been to Rio, you've been to Pyeongchang, you were at London. I was at London and Sochi. I miss I miss Sochi, so well, I, I regret that a little bit. But I've been to the other three, but but not Sochi. Okay, so any others? No, you know London was the first one, and my wife and I have been talking about it for years, and we just always thought it was a little bit daunting to plan everything, similar to like what we're talking here. And we made the decision to go to London less than 60 days before it started. And, you know, somewhat miraculously, we were able to get, you know, set tickets for 17 events that we uh, did over 10 days. So I think the important po point about that is it's almost never too late. And as long as you – I spent a lot – I won't tell you how much time I spent hunting for tickets to be able to do that. But if, if you really want to go, you can go to the Olympics with some effort, and you can have a great time to see the events you want to see. What are kind of the best last minute things that happened to you that you just sort of stumbled upon? You know, getting an invite to the Team USA house, that was pretty cool. Uh, you know, last minute things just, you know, by chance you just end up running into people. Uh, walking out of the Team USA house in, in, in Rio, my wife and I, we ran into Allie Reisman, who's, you know, my, my wife just absolutely, you know, loves her. And, you know, to be able to, you know, say hello and, you know, to run into people here and there. You know, it, the Olympics, 
it's a very small world. You know, walking through uh, even Olympic Park, you'll run into you know lots of great athletes. You know, people that are even just coming out of you know having done an annou- you know announcing. You know, a lot of the stars that we hear doing the or former stars that are doing the announcements or doing the the telecast. You know, they're just walking through the park casually. You know, people coming up, talking to them, taking pictures with them. Those are great. And I just last minute, I've had you know tickets fall on my lap. You know, a week, two weeks before the event, I didn't have t- tickets for opening ceremonies for Rio. Was able to get them. Uh, some some other finals. You know, I, I'm a big, I'm a huge swimming fan. And so you know, getting you know tickets to almost all of the finals, uh, actually all the finals in Rio. Those types of things were all you know pretty exciting that happened pretty much last minute. Okay, so now I want to know the worst stuff. Not necessarily to you, but even just like the worst stories that you've heard. Because we've heard stories about people getting arrested and having to get the Kazakh ambassador involved and, you know, various and sundry things. So I, I like the worst stories, too. Yeah. You know, the worst stories I, I've heard, you know, outside of what's you know, been in the meeting or been in the media in terms of especially in Rio with you know, some athletes that, you know, some U.S. athletes. The things I've heard of is people's Airbnbs being canceled on them at the last minute. I've heard of you know people obviously getting to an event and their tickets not working. Uh, those are probably the most two common like most painful things that that I've seen. Probably the most heartbreaking thing I've seen is for the last finals uh, in Rio 2016 where Michael Phelps was swimming in the relay. There was a literally a thousand people outside the venue asking for tickets, and we walked in and we sat down and there was 250 seats that remained empty through most of the session. And I think for me, that was one of the most heartbreaking things that I've seen because there was literally people begging, offering to pay a lot of money for people's tickets walking uh, into the venue and just see that many tickets go to, or that many seats go to waste. is just, uh, that's probably one of the most heartbreaking things I've seen. Do you know, do we have to worry about visa issues with Tokyo? We do not. Okay. Yeah, uh, even, I didn't think even, so. Yeah. Yeah, even for a country, you know, we we technically did for uh, before uh, for Rio before they gave a waiver. But you know, we, we you know Japan is obviously is is very easy for for uh, United States uh, to travel there tourist wise, uh, and they you know the countries expand the the visa or lessons of visa requirements during times like the Olympics. As long as you're going there for tourism, if you're going there for business, right? It's, it's you still have you still have to do some things. Do you have more Tokyo questions, Jill? No, I'm good. Okay. You're, are you, how are you feeling? See, Jill awesome. is planning to go. I am not. So this okay. is, that's why I say, Jill, do you have more? Yeah, no. <laughs> a lot of it is like, okay, you did the ticket lottery and now it's kind of wait and see and then plan. And like, we've been saving up points and miles for years and years, but I have a feeling like we're going to get disappointed on those hotel points. But here, here's what I'd say is if you're trying to plan with points or miles, you mm-hmm. need to be on that. Right when, when depending on the airline rights, between 350, I think, and 365 days, that that the instant oh, yeah. that, that 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 opens up, you have to be on that. Same same with a hotel. The, the, those are those are things that I think are really important to do. The the other thing is is I think there's going to be a lot of disappointed people on on June 20th, and as part of that, I think we're going to see maybe some frustration, some other things. But I think that the main point is, is that's most important for people who are planning to go is don't get discouraged. I will tell you, I have never gotten great tickets through any of the lotteries I've applied to, and I've applied to multiple. I went to over 30 events at Rio over 17 days. I went to 22 events at Pyeongchang. I went to 17 in London. So I think the important thing is if you're patient and you're persistent, you'll be able to get the tickets. 
like I said, is I think I've gotten a total of one ticket, one set of tickets that I've used through all, all the lotteries I've gone through. And I think that's a really important piece or a real important point to keep in perspective, really, as we, you know, as we go through June 20th. I think a lot of people learn that they didn't get anything. So June 21st, we should go and console people. <laughs> I, I, I think so. I'm interested to see. I'm really, I'm really interested to see the coverage. See what, uh, see how Twitter is. See how some of the other social media, uh, you know, are. But the, the bottom line is, you will have a lot more chances. There'll be a lot more chances. Good. Good. Well, thank so, you so much, Ken. This yeah. was great and very helpful. Yeah. Yes, thank you. My, my, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Ken. You can follow Ken on Instagram at the Ken Haskum. On Twitter, he's at Ken Hanscom. At, and you can also follow Ticket Manager, his company, at Ticket Manager on Twitter. And we'll have links to those in the show notes. So did you take lots of notes? I took and... lots of notes. And I will underscore that getting a Visa card has got to be one of the most important things you do. So yeah. if you need a Visa card, get a Visa card. But I would also say having experience writing about credit cards make sure you get one with no foreign exchange fees. And there's a lot of choices out there because otherwise you are going to pay a percentage of every purchase you make on that card in a fee that's a convenience fee for exchanging the money into the U.S. currency. That would be my piece of advice. But I did wonder how successful I could expect to be in the ticket lottery. So fingers but crossed I get something... Yeah, and it, but it doesn't sound like it's a big deal if you don't. No, that's true. And, step. and and when we've talked to Olympian people too, they tell you like, oh, you you know, I bartered pins for tickets and things like that. So I, I'm sure there's going to be ways. It does concern me because the interest is so huge. But yes. I, I would think that London was also a hugely popular event. Yes. And I just, I, there, there's always a way. There's always a way in. And, you know, now that we have our Olympian friends, mm -hmm. they know a Kazakh who may be able to help you. <laughs> yeah, should you should you need the help of a Kazakh? <laughs> they have a friend at the Kazakh embassy. In Russia. <laughs> well, you know what? Having a friend at the Kazakh embassy is never a bad idea. You'll see. Okay, put that on my list. Make friends. If you are planning on going to the games, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter or Insta at Olim Fever and on Facebook at Olympic Fever Podcast. Or better yet, join our Olympic Fever Podcast group and we can chat about it. And we, we have some new members this week. So thank you all for joining. It was very, It's very exciting. And then we can talk about what to do and maybe make a splinter group of people who are planning to go. And we can share our insight and tips or that Maybe have a little meetup in Tokyo. Yeah, that would be nice. I would love to have a little meetup in Tokyo. So, but let us know if you are going because we would love to meet up with you. If we, if regardless of whether we can get a group meetup going. Moving on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Happy tofu. Happy Father's Day. Father's Day is this weekend in the U.S. and I think many other countries. And we have several members of Team Olympic Fever who are fathers. So happy Father's Day goes out to Charlie White, Jimmy Pedro, the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant, Brian Fletcher, 
John Schuster, Shiva Keshevan, Taylor Lipset, Tony Azevedo, and John Neighbor. And to our, and you know, to all of our favorite dads. Yes. Happy Father's Day to you too. Yeah. Moving on to Tokyo 2020 news. One of the things that happened recently that was a bunch of volunteers went and picked up trash around the Olympic surfing venue in Tokyo, and they picked up 45 kilograms, which is a considerable amount, which if you're not familiar with kilograms, that's about 100 pounds. And they did that in like an hour. So it was like a mass of volunteers descended on this beach for an hour and picked up all this trash, which is nice that they picked it up, but disturbing that that much trash was there. And that they had to do that. Right. And it makes you wonder what's going to happen between now and then. Right. How many more of these cleanup days are they going to have to have to clean up? Because you know that the Japanese organizers are going to have that pristine. Speaking of plastic and detrius, the organizers have said they are going to make the podiums of discarded plastic. So it's going to be they're, they're recycling the plastic to put in the podiums. And I thought that was really cool. Well, it goes back to how they were making the metals out of reclaimed um, materials from cell phones. So they're really making some, yeah, they're small gestures, but they're very public gestures. Right. I mean, the the metals and the podiums are about as big as you can get in terms of symbolism. So to make a point of making those out of recycled materials is very indicative of what they're trying to do. Right, exactly. So and like they did that with the metals, they are going to collect plastic from regular citizens in Tokyo, in in Japan. So they're going to have about 2,000 retail stores across the country that will be collecting plastics to use to make these podiums. So also getting the public involved, making this a whole group crowdsourcing effort that gets people excited about the games yeah and that's really smart and the the organizers said they're going to collect about forty five thousand kilograms which is about a hundred thousand pounds and i bet they can do it in about two weeks <laughs> well if the metals were any yeah, indication right? <laughs> they, they were months early with collecting the leftover right? cell phone right? so. so yeah the people really stepped up and took part and so you know all really that exciting. hello kitty packaging has got to go somewhere right right the um uh the chief executive of the Tokyo Olympics Toshiro Muto reminded everybody this week that cannabis is not legal in Japan. So please don't bring it over and please don't expect to smoke it. Was there any indication of why he why this came up or who I, this was I directed don't at? No, but maybe like I mean, because it's for the athletes, it it's came a banned, out, right? Yeah, I mean, cannabis is a banned substance for the athletes, so right. That's not the right, but uh, but that's not the concern. There, he because it's been legalized in portions of the world. Uh, they were worried about people trying to bring it in to enhance their experience, and they just wanted to remind people: if you're coming, leave your weed at home. Probably a good plan. Also. The IOC has commissioned an anime movie. It's going to be an animated short that will be released ahead of the games. Well, I hope it is better than that ridiculous Izzy movie that oh, we watched. Oh, that's right. That's right. Well, it's going to be better. Come on. A, you're dealing it's with... It's anime and you're dealing with the masters. Yeah. The IOC commissioned Studio Ponok, which is a Japanese animation studio, and... This will be the first time that they've commissioned a, an animated short to to be released in conjunction with the games. 
well, maybe this was why they reminded us about cannabis being illegal, so that you're watching anime and smoking the cannabis at the same time, that that kind of would I go together. I, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. I've never seen anime <laughs> and I've never smoked pot. So I'm just assuming that it would enhance the experience. And it would certainly have made that Izzy movie a little more oh, tolerable. It, it might have. For the Paralympics, uh, Tokyo 2020 announced that students at Tokyo Metropolitan Kogei High School, which is a technical college, and they teach uh, professional crafts and design, they're going to produce... 20 wooden clubs that are going to be used in the Paralympics and the wooden clubs because I didn't really realize this there's an event in athletics called club throw which is kind of like the equivalent of javelin so it's really kind of cool that this high school got involved with being able to create these instruments for the Paralympics huh I like that right and this high school has previously made wooden ramps that they've used in boccia which is also another Paralympic sport. So they've had some Paralympic sport involvement, and that's really cool that they're continuing it. Like that. And finally, speaking of traveling to Tokyo and the worry of finding a place to stay, because I, I will tell you that is one of my big concerns. I would I mean, agree. I am very concerned. We're going to try to use some points. I'm very concerned that one year out when we're going to try to book rooms that they will just all be gone because... Well, um, now you can stay on Princess of the Seas. I know. So cruise lines are going to have some ships to be used as floating hotels. And there's also going to be cruises that will make port calls in Tokyo during the Olympics. But I loved the idea that both MSC Cruises and Princess Cruises will be housing fans on boats during the entire run of the games. They're just basically docking the cruise ship outside obviously outside of Tokyo but in wherever the cruise ships dock as close to Tokyo right, venues right, as possible right and then they're just using them as hotels which is brilliant and what was so interesting in the article we read was they did this in London they did this in Athens mm -hmm. yeah I didn't realize that that was, I had no clue and it's so smart because instead of building all these additional hotels you just literally ship in a thousand really nice hotel rooms right and an all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> we got to get back to the ship. That chocolate buffet is going to start. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but uh, Princess will have uh, the Sun Princess boat docked in Yokohama, and that's a little bit south of Tokyo. And then MSC Cruises will have their ship Lyrica, and that's going to be at a port in Koto Ward, which is part of Tokyo. Those umbrella drinks aren't going to mix themselves. Right. Right, exactly. So be be careful, though. The rooms are um, going to run anywhere from nearly 300 to over 2700 a night. So you will pay, but it's another option out there. And it would be a nice option. I mean, honestly, how cheap are the hotel rooms going to be in Tokyo not very. anyway? I can I mean, imagine Tok not very. Tokyo is an expensive city. So $300 a night during the Olympics doesn't sound outrageous to me. No, no, not at all. Moving on uh, to Olympic Day news, because Olympic Day is Sunday the 23rd. So we're going to have one more episode before Olympic Day hits. And for Olympic Fever Olympic Day, we 
just ask you to do something sporty and take a picture of it and share it with us on social or you can email it to us at info at olimfever.com and we'll send you a little certificate of participation. Get but, tag Olympic Fever Olympic Day. Right. Or OFOD. And you should also tag Olympic Day so that the USOC knows what you're doing too and probably the IOCs because they like to see participation. But the USOC has a website that's got Olympic Day events around the country that you can find something close to you and, and your mileage is going to vary on what's what's going to happen. Like near me... There was a BMX park maybe an hour or so away, but they had their thing at the beginning of June. So you might get something that you find near you that would be cool. You might find something that's really only geared towards kids, which is why we make our own. So do something sporty. But they also have decided to do a virtual race. It is open to anyone, anywhere, anytime during the entire month of June. So it's a 5K or a 3.1 mile a virtual race, no cost to participate. You customize it yourself. But what you do is we'll put the link to this in the show notes. You just register. You'll get an e-bib. That's a printable PDF of your race number. Tell everybody about it. Use the hashtags. Put it on social media. And then you could walk, run, bike, roll, row, or swim the quote-unquote race distance anytime during the month of June. And then you enter your stats, and then you will receive a certificate of participation, which oh. is another PDF, which is really cool. So you can you don't have to run if you're not a runner. You can walk it. You can swim. I might actually go put my roller skates on and roll this. That would be cool. Seriously? Yeah, it's only three miles. Okay, so when you put on your roller skates, be sure mm-hmm. to put on your protective oh, padding. Oh, always, always, always put on the protective gear. Helmet, yeah. for sure. Yes. Knee pads. I'll, I'll, yes. I do not skate without the protective gear. Got to protect your jaw. Too scared. Because you can't have podcasting injuries. <laughs> no chipping of teeth. Maybe I'll do like half a mile back and forth and back and forth and back and forth where I know it's flat. On the flatlands, yeah. <laughs> hey, but you know what? This allows for that. That's true. So Whatever your limitations, this mm-hmm. makes it work for you, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, so that's really exciting. So if you do that as well, you know, tag us in, in your posts too, because we would love to see um, our listeners who participate. It's exciting. I like Olympic Day. I do like Olympic Day. I never know what to do with Olympic Day. I know. It's like I want to do something, but this is actually the race is kind of nice because it's a Sunday and you can bring the whole family out. And... Right. Or you don't even have to do it on Sunday. You can do right. it during the week. Don't forget there's Olympic Fever Book Club going on and we are going to be talking about the book on our July 11th episode. So that is Making Ways by Shirley Babishoff. And I've started it and it's pretty interesting so far. I'm uh, really excited to get into the meat of it because I, I looked at some of the pictures. She's got a lot of pictures. Oh, good. Yeah. So, I'm waiting um, for mine to arrive. Okay. But uh, so far it's it's gonna, I know it's going to be a good read. Let us know if you're reading it and what you think because we'll have Book Club Claire back on to talk about it. And you can get your copy, if you haven't done so yet, plenty of time. Please do so through shopping via our Amazon link on our website because that will give us a little commission for your purchase and that goes a long way to helping us support the show and keep it going. On that note, we will wrap it up for this week. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you back here next week with more Olympic stories. And in the meantime, keep the flame alive. Stay in touch. Email us at olimfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M fever at gmail. 
You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Fever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. If you're coming, leave your weed at home.